0: Now friends, hear the word of the Lord as he speaks to us from his scripture, from Luke chapter 10, verses 10, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I re- return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's pray now as we examine his word. God and Father, pray that you might be moving and near to us in your love as your people, conforming us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Father, we all fall far short of that likeness, but though we are sinners, Work and draw us onward. Father, I fall short of that likeness, but though I am a sinner, speak through me. Work by your word on your people. Amen. So, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's, one, there's been this interesting cultural shift that's happened in terms of the, becoming deeply suspicious of the idea of heroes. Like, I don't know if you ever noticed, but if you watch, you know, like a TV show or movie, right? There, there was a time when every movie had to have this really clear hero with like a square jaw and, you know, perfect in every way and, you know, kind of almost superhuman. And today, instead, the emphasis tends to be on looking at the flaws of characters. And you get a lot of anti-heroes, which are really villains that are just less bad than the villains of the movie, and so you root for them anyway. And the thing about that cultural shift is that there are, I think there are both good and bad parts of that cultural shift. On the one hand, what's right about that is that it recognizes the reality that people are flawed and sinful, and there's an appropriate suspicion that we should have about them. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but do you, if you want a book that really deconstructs its heroes, the Bible in a lot of ways is actually that book, right? I mean, all of the Abraham and Moses and David like it goes out of its way to show us their sin and their failings and make clear that they're not perfect larger than life figures. The Bible does that because the only hero in its story is Jesus. He's the only one who stands as that actually kind of true, perfect, righteous being, and that we're supposed to learn to look to him as the hero of that story. But there's a goodness there. And I mean, even for Christians, like like just frankly, it would probably be healthy for some Christians have their sort of heroic version vision of certain celebrities or whatever kind of made more you know biblical and realistic so that part's good the bad part though is that another part of why i think we've deconstructed heroes why we're uncomfortable with them is because heroes challenge us by their very nature that when we look at somebody who is morally kind of upright and deeply good in those ways and heroic that can actually make us recognize that we fall far short of that, right? It can kind of expose our faults. And so I do think another part of that impulse is unhealthy because we're trying to avoid that. And frankly, that's not just heroes in comic books or something. That's, I mean, anytime that we see someone and we're like, we come away and we're like, they're just too nice. You know, they, they work too hard. <laughs> like, maybe that's true, but often what that really means is like, I'm feeling kind of challenged by this person and so I'm going to try to pull them down to my level. That, that when we're confronted with true goodness, it can leave us feel feeling convicted and condemned. Take those ideas, remember them. We're going to come back to them later, okay? Now let's talk about this story from Luke. If you pick up in Luke 25, it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So a lawyer, which to be clear, is not like the person that we make jokes about in our world that does like contract law or something and we have at least diana's kind of giving me the look but um but by lawyer they mean a teacher of the old testament law someone who kind of teaches and adjudicates cases about the law of moses a religious lawyer and he asked jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life and so jesus says to him what is written in the law how do you read it And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So first we should say, this teacher of the law's answer is a very good answer because it's actually exactly the same answer Jesus gives when he's asked to summarize the law. He says, you know, the the love God and love your neighbor. It's a good answer. I do think it's worth maybe... Just for a minute, talking about that, because I feel like in the church sometimes we misunderstand what he means by that. We will often do like you know, love God, love your neighbor, and that is a good summary of the law. But we'll use it in a way that makes it kind of opposed to God's commandments. It's like, well, you know, all that stuff the Bible says about like you know, pride and um, you know, and anger or sex or justice or Rest or generosity all that stuff. Those are like commands. No, no, no It's just love god and love your neighbor and that is not what jesus means or what this teacher of the law would mean Right when scripture says that the greatest commandments are love god and love your neighbor It's saying that's not a replacement for god's commands But it's a summary of god's commands that the way that we're supposed to love people is by obeying and living the way that god calls us to live But it's a needful summary because it also reminds us of the purpose of those commands. One of the ways those commands can go wrong is they can get disconnected from that overarching purpose of love. And if that happens, then that becomes destructive. We'll touch on that a little bit more later with this teacher of the law. But love God, love your neighbor. We might also wonder, is that how you get eternal life? If you've been around the church, maybe you're already kind of thinking that, right? That's the question. How do I inherit eternal life? And God says, what does the law command? And this guy sums it up. And if you're wondering about that, we're actually going to talk quite a bit about that in a few minutes. So hold on to that question. But I will note this now because it's worth having in the back of your head. One of the things that happens sometimes in the Gospels, and one of the reasons I think sometimes people struggle with Gospel stories, is that Jesus will at times enter into someone's wrong way of thinking in order to try to reveal to that person what's wrong with their way of thinking that he'll kind of enter into the way that they're viewing the world to try to expose how it's jacked up or not the way they should be viewing the world. And I think that's what's happening here, but I'll explain that more fully a little bit later. For now, the lawyer says, that's the command. And I love the fact, you'll, you'll notice there, Jesus is like, yes, you know, that, that is a good summary of the law. And then the teacher of the law says, desiring to justify himself said to jesus and who is my neighbor which is so perfectly indicative of what happens right it's easy to say that oh just you know love god with all your heart soul mind and strength love your neighbor as yourself but then you sit with that for a minute and then you're like but 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 like what are the exceptions right what are the limits on that commandment who 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 do i actually have to love like that and in response to that jesus tells him a story he says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. So in our world bandits are not really a thing despite maybe the alarmism of the evening news but in Jesus's world where there's a lot less people there's no modern transportation no modern communication it is actually very common for gangs of people to like live between cities and they would survive by beating and robbing people that were traveling and the road from jerusalem to jericho was well known for this kind of bandit activity because it's like 15 miles of like winding mountain roads where you can't really see very far ahead of yourself and there's lots of good hiding spots so it was kind of infamous for that but these bandits rob and beat this guy and leave him for dead it says now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So priests and Levites, priests were priests. They were the people who were in charge of the temple and the sacrifices and things in ancient Israel. And then priests were from the tribe of Levi, and the rest of the Levites also helped with the sort of religious life of Israel. So maybe think of this as like a pastor and then an elder, right, from, from the church. We're, were walking down the road, and they both see the man and pass by on the other side. And the thing that you need to understand about that is that that's actually a completely reasonable thing to do. We're all trained to like wag our fingers, but one, these guys probably were worried about their safety. Because this road is famous for its bandit activity, and they're both traveling alone. And also, they knew that very recently bandits were robbing and killing people because there's this half-dead guy laying at the side of the road, right? Like right here, and it could well be some kind of trap or something. It's entirely reasonable to say it is not safe to stop and help this guy. And two, in their way of viewing the world, they also did not know who this guy was. It's actually significant that he was beaten and stripped naked. A Jewish person, which is who Jesus is talking to, would 100% have said that if this person was Jewish, you should stop and help them. But if they're a Gentile, like one of those Samaritans, then, you know, not so much. And because all of those people were ethnically very close to each other, the main way you could tell the difference was that Jewish people would wear these robes that had these, like, tassels on their shoulders that would mark out that they were Jewish, but this guy's naked, so they wouldn't know whether he's a fellow Jew or one of those other people. And in addition to all of that, in um, in Jewish religion, they can't tell whether this guy's alive or not. Touching a dead body makes you ceremonially unclean. And that's not in itself a big deal. You just do these ritual washings, and then the next evening you're ceremonially clean again. But remember, these guys are both religious leaders, and they may well be traveling to go do religious work, right? To like, you know, like lead worship services or ritual whatevers. And they couldn't do those things if they were ceremonially unclean. So they could also very easily have just said, like, man, like, someone needs to help this guy, but I've got to do the Lord's work, and, you know, I'm not going to let that interfere with doing God's work. But they pass him by. And I say all of that to say, first of all, Jesus' hearers, now, maybe they would agree, maybe they would disagree with passing the guy by, but they would have all understood that. And to be frank, we probably should be more understanding than we are just I mean, if I can just be honest about it for a second, I have, and I think many of us have used safety, if nothing else, as an excuse not to help people at times, right? That that we've said, like, well, I don't know if it's really safe, and so, you know, I mean, like, that's totally something that, that I have done. But that said, they pass by, and then verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. We've talked before about the Samaritans and the Jews. They hated each other. And to remind us, the important thing to realize is that it's not just that they looked down on each other like, oh, you're kind of different than me or gross or something. But the Samaritans and Jews saw each other as existential, religious, and political threats that the Samaritans had this other form of the Jewish religion that was praying to these statues in the high places in northern Israel that Israel would have understood as a direct threat to what they, you know, saw as the, the religion of scripture. And the Samaritans worked at times to, to try to get the Roman Empire to destroy Jerusalem and kill the Jews because they, you know, they were kind of competing for the space in Israel. So, so these are—when you read about Samaritans in the Bible— You don't just want to substitute, like, oh, here's, like, a kind of dirty person that I might look down on. You want to substitute, like, the groups of people that are, that you would see as existential threats to your group, right? And so depending on where you fit in America, that's, like, I don't know, like, the LGBTQ lobby, or QAnon, you know, or, or like, you know, Muslim terrorists. Like, you know, you want to take those groups farthest from you that you would feel the most threatened by and kind of read them into it. The Samaritan stops and looks with compassion and helps this guy. And we should note as well that all the stuff we said about the priest and the Levite really does apply to the Samaritan too. I mean, he's just as unsafe when he does this, right? He, you know, he's also traveling alone down this road. And he can't tell this guy's ethnicity either. And, I mean, he's a Samaritan... If you're traveling between Jerusalem and Jericho, probably you're Jewish, right? So, like, the odds are much less likely that he's helping one of his fellow countrymen than the the priest or the Levite would have been. And on top of that, while he's not a religious leader, he would also become ceremonially unclean in the Samaritan religion if he touched a dead body. So all that stuff is still on the table. But he helps the guy. And look at how he helps him. It says, He went to him bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he goes, he doesn't just call 911, right? He, he like, gets this guy from the side of the road and puts him in the car and drives him to the hospital and carries him in and then he pays the guy's medical bills so that they would take care of him goes above and beyond in helping him and then jesus looks at the teacher of the law and says which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers he said the one who showed him mercy and jesus said to him you go and do likewise So coming back to that question, he says, but who counts as my neighbor? Jesus says, the way to think about this is instead to say, if you were in distress, who would you want to be a neighbor to you? And then to let that define the boundaries. Because you wouldn't care about all those other things, right? If you're laying there dying on the side of the road, like, you wouldn't care about anything except that this person is helping you. And he says, do likewise. So what do we make of this story? Well, as I kind of said earlier, I think there is a deeper level that this story is meant to challenge the whole way this teacher of the law is thinking. And we're going to get there, but I don't want to skip past the fact that first, we do really need to feel the weight of this vision of neighbor love. In the first place, Jesus wants us to recognize that we should measure our love for our neighbors by our love for our enemies. We should measure our love by our love for our enemies. I think it's easy for us, right? Someone is like, are you a loving person? And what I think about is like my kids, as long as we're having a good day. Or I think about like my friends, right? You know, you think about like family members, spouses, the people closest to you, the people that you like the most, and you say, you know. I'm a pretty loving person. Like, I, I, I'm pretty loving towards those people. And so we measure our love by the people that are easiest for us to love, that are closest to us. But scripture wants to say, really, the measure of your love needs to come in terms of those farthest from you, those with the least to offer, those who even threaten you. But we're supposed to look at them and ask, are we loving them? I think this story would also remind us that love requires Action requires us to do things out of love. One of the most challenging things about the sin of the priest and the Levite in this story is that they're not doing anything wrong, right? They didn't beat the guy up. They didn't rob the guy. They're not in any way worsening this guy's situation. They're just walking by him. But it's precisely that lack of action that is their failure to love. It's so easy for us as Christians to get into this, like, which, you know, as long as I'm not actively breaking commandments, right? Like, do not do these things, and like, I'm fulfilling the law. But that's just the beginning biblically. Remember, if the law is summarized as love, that's about action. It's about doing things for people. And we need to not hide those sins of, we could call them sins of omission and inaction. We are called to act out love. And, even more than that, love would call us to costly. Action, to costly action. The Samaritan pays significant costs as he loves the, as this guy by the side of the road. He, the cost of his own safety and security as he risks, you know, bandits like we talked about. The cost of time and money. It's so striking to me. He he, he takes the guy to the 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 inn and not only does he give him It's the equivalent of like a few hundred bucks and say take care of this guy But then he also says remember this is before credit cards, right? He says like i'm going to be coming back this way and i'll pay the rest of his bills Whatever they cost as I come back this way. He's effectively giving the guy his credit card, right? He's like whatever it costs go ahead and take care of this guy's needs And it costs the samaritan in terms of his prejudices and his own kind of place in the world He's helping this guy who he would see as an enemy And that's a real cost as well. Love requires us to sacrifice of things in action for others. And not only all of that, but I think this story would also remind us that that sacrificial, acted-out love is also supposed to come from a heart of love. There's this key moment, right? The Samaritan comes upon the guy, and before he helps him, it says he looks with compassion or with pity on him. So love is an action. It's not just a feeling, right? On the one hand, people fall into the trap where they're like, well, I love people because I feel affectionate towards them, but if it doesn't result in actions, that's not love. But it's also not love biblically if it's just actions and your heart isn't in it. And I think we can fall into that too. Frankly, I do that sometimes. I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to love this person in this sort of like, I'm duty bound to do nice things for them way. But my heart really despises them. And, and Jesus would say, like, look, if you look at a person in this broken, hurting situation, like this guy by the side of the road, if you look at that fellow human being and your heart doesn't go out to them and you don't feel that compassion for them, that's also in some ways a failure to love. Both our hearts and our actions are supposed to be engaged. So that, Jesus says, is what it means to love our neighbors. How are you doing with that? How are you feeling when you reflect on that calling to love? That's where I actually want to then back up and note this deeper thing I think is also happening in this story. Remember how we said that often Jesus enter people's wrong ways of thinking in order to challenge them, right? he kind of enter into the way they're thinking about the world. That's what I think is happening here. The teacher of the law comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what Jesus does is he enters into the teacher's own answer. Right? He asks the teacher, well, what do you think God's word commands? And the teacher says, perfect love. Perfect love is how I can inherit eternal life. Perfectly loving God, perfectly loving my neighbor. And Jesus says, yep. And the silence hangs. As if asking this teacher of the law, and how are you doing with that? Which is why he then jumps up, and it says, desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The only reason you ask that question is because you're already feeling the, the reality that depending on who your neighbor is, you're not perfectly keeping that law of love. Which is to say another angle on this parable is that what Jesus is trying to do is confront this lawyer with what the call to love really looks like with true goodness and with true perfection in order to show that lawyer his sin. Or we could say that he's, he's telling this lawyer a story with a hero like we talked about at the beginning. And he's telling a a story with this hero. This, This Samaritan does behave in this, you know, in this really like admirable, perfect way because he knows that that hero is going to reveal the fact that this teacher of the law is falling short. Theologians talk about the fact that when we think about God's law, God's commandments, it really does, it has two uses. Well, it technically has three uses. I know there's like, you know, Brennan, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but for this morning, there's two uses of God's law. Two ways that it functions at the same time. One is that God's law is meant to reveal God's moral will to us. Meaning it is really telling us, like, this is how God desires for human beings to live together. And in that function, we are supposed to hear it and say, I ought to seek to grow to be more like that. And so we should seek, that kind of love we talked about, we should seek to be growing in. But at the same time, the law's other use is to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. That while it's calling us to seek to grow in that, God's God's law is also always convicting us of the fact that we fall short. And that is what's happening to this teacher. He wants the law to be just this thing that he can follow and then get eternal life. And instead, Jesus gives him a law that shows him his need for salvation. Which is to say that while he's giving him this story about a hero, he's also doing it in a way to make very clear to this lawyer that he doesn't get to be the hero of his story, that Jesus is deconstructing it. Or to show you that in a different way. Again, verse 25, he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do you notice his assumption in that question? That the way you get eternal life is by earning it, by doing enough to get it, right? What he does not say is, teacher, what, how does, how is, will God give me eternal life, right? Will you give me eternal life? Teacher, you know, can I receive eternal life from God? No, it's how, what do I do to get it? And so what Jesus wants this teacher of the law to ultimately recognize is that he is not the hero. Friends, the reality of Scripture's story is that Jesus is the only one who perfectly keeps the law of God. He's the only one who comes close to perfectly loving God and loving neighbor. The reality of Scripture is that Jesus is the only one who deserves to inherit eternal life, right? To inherit it, like Jesus is the Son. He's the only one with rights to it. We're all creatures. And Jesus... Not the priests and religious officials that oppose him in the New Testament, but Jesus is the one who comes and seeks after people and saves them and heals them and works their salvation. Or to put it another way, the deeper truth of this parable is that Jesus is the Good Samaritan. And that's what he's inviting us to ultimately see. Throughout the history of the church, people have actually recognized this fact. I just want to read you Martin Luther's summary of it. He says this, he says, but Christ, the true Samaritan, takes the poor man to himself as his own, goes to him, and does not require the helpless one to come to him. For here is no merit but pure grace and mercy, and he binds up his wounds, cares for him, and pours in oil and wine, This is the whole gospel from beginning to end. Behold, you poor man, here is your unbelief. Here is your condemnation. Here you are wounded and sore. Wait, all this I will cure with the gospel. Behold, here cling firmly to this Samaritan, to Christ the Savior. He will help you, and nothing else in heaven or on earth will. Which is to say that what we're really called to do, we go into this story thinking that we're going to be the Good Samaritan. And what we end up realizing is that we need a Good Samaritan ourselves. And so the question we have to wrestle with is whether we will receive the healing and love of God or whether we will seek, like this teacher of the law, to do it on our own. Let me come at this one last way to try to show this to you. Because... The other, another way to put this is that if you want to love your neighbor the way that you're called to biblically, if you want to be able to grow in that way, the only way you're going to be able to do it is if you're not operating the way this lawyer is. And here's what I mean. Imagine that this lawyer, he hears the parable and he says, well, okay, so, so what I've got to do is do that perfectly. Right? I've got to just love my enemies and, you know, I, I, I've got to do good things for them and costly things for them. And so he goes and he tries to do that so that he can deserve eternal life. Is that loving them? One of the things that I realize at times about my love, right, is that it's not actually motivated by the person. It's not actually the person that I'm loving, but what I'm doing is I'm loving myself by doing things for other people, right? Like, I'm trying to prove to the world, right, you know, or I'm trying to prove something to myself. I'm trying to prove something to God about myself by doing these things, but it's not actually love because it's about me. And that's at best, right? That's all that the teacher of the law could do by his own efforts, because what he's seeking is ultimately about himself. The only way you can really selflessly love your neighbor, the only way you can look at them and from the heart have that compassion and pour yourself out for them, is if that need that he has is being met somewhere else. The only way that you can have that kind of love for your neighbor that's really about your neighbor is for you... To not be having to to prove those things to God about yourself. You not having to earn those things. You not having to do anything to inherit eternal life. If you get trapped in that trap of religion and trying to do those things in the name of love, it's going to poison your attempts to love. But the good news of the gospel and of God's love is that you don't have to do those things because we receive God's salvation graciously as he comes and meets us and heals us. That we are loved in a way that frees us from that need to prove those things about ourselves and so frees us to actually be able to love our neighbor. We're to come back once more to that original language. What we're ultimately invited to do is to recognize that Jesus is the hero. He's the, he's o- it's only ever going to be him who's truly the hero of our stories. But as we recognize that and we let that hero save us, so we are able to be called as we see his love to become more and more like him and begin to show that love for others. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you so much that you have loved us. You've loved me, you've loved each of us freely, not because we deserved it, not because we did enough to inherit eternal life, but because we were battered and broken, helpless and poor. You saw us and looked with compassion on us and healed us and saved us. I thank you for that love. I pray, Lord, that you would impress, first of all, that love on the hearts of each of us here, on all those who follow you. Father, help us to know experientially the reality of that love that you have for us. And Father, out of that, I also pray that you would stir up in us this true love for others. Help us to love those that we hate. Help us to love those that would do us harm. Help us to love people in our actions, not just in our words or thoughts. Help us in costly actions. Help us to lay, lay down our lives in service to people. Father, I pray that you would work this love in our hearts as we experience your love for us. I pray that for for myself, for those of us here, and I pray that for your church as a whole, Father. I so long to just have your people be known for this kind of selfless, sacrificial, Jesus-shaped love, that we might therefore point people to the source of that love, in Jesus Christ, our good Samaritan, in whose name we pray. Amen.